All right, well, I have my scotch. Oh, you're really manly. I actually have some uh, coffee. <laughs> oh, I don't drink coffee. Ever? Welcome, everybody, to Never Stay Dead. I am Damien, and I am joined by my good buddy... Hello, Internet. I'm Matthew. Matthew, yes. Uh, otherwise known as Wednesday Serial on YouTube, and often easy to listen to on Untold Talks of Spider-Man. Tonight, or in this episode, we are going to talk about eight issues of the X-Men, or Uncanny X-Men. They seem to just be called X-Men at this point, and not Uncanny. Yeah, when you're trying to file comics and look up prices and stuff, it's annoying. But yeah, this is this is what is considered the Uncanny run, but they dropped the Uncanny for a right. while. And they, are, they have the subtitle, The Strangest Teens of All. Yeah, because Ninja Turtles weren't out yet. So we're going to look at... 56 through 63, which is the run of um, Neil Adams teaming up with Roy Thomas. And it's Neil Adams' very first work at Marvel Comics, as far as I understand. And um, he kind of came in as a superstar, I guess, temporarily leaving DC. And they said, um, what would you like to do? And he said, well, what's one of your lowest selling comics? This is what he says. And they said, the X-Men were about to cancel it. And he said, give me that. <laughs> so he really wanted to, um, I don't know, show his stuff off by saving a, a dying franchise. Right. And this is something you're big to point out normally, but this is back in the day when the artist was more the uh, name that would sell a book, more so than the right. author. Right. Other than Stan Lee himself, artists were the celebrities of this world. And... <laughs> Arguably, no one was bigger than Neil Adams at this point. Maybe, well, Jack Kirby and Neil Adams were kind of the two biggest names in comics. But Jack Kirby would have been kind of the old war horse, right, at this point, whereas Neil Adams would be the hot new up-and-comer. So exactly. Bring yes. more heat. And he, brought, uh, he, he, would, and he brought something, you know, everyone was already doing Jack Kirby by 1969, you know, all the other Marvel artists, and he brought something completely different to it. And, um, you know, now we, we have a hundred artists who come from that Neil Adams lineage. Um, but at the time he was the only one doing kind of his thing. Could you even attempt to explain what his thing is different than say, I don't know, Eisner or Kirby? So, um, what he brought in my opinion was this knew what looked to comic book readers at the time a realistic style that was very anatomically dynamic and had a lot of flow. And so he took a more realistic human body, so to speak, and but put it in extremely dynamic poses, but a different kind of, a more ballet kind of pose as opposed to what you might see with Jack Kirby, which was more, you know, storm and thunder kind of poses does that make any sense i so if i could attempt to put my swerve on that i, I think what it is is you're right and i heard yannick paquette talk about this once is like as an artist you need to be able to swing from the abstract or cartoony in a comic sense to the photorealistic and a quality artist has the ability to go either way and then pick a point in between that they feel matches what they're doing and go for it and neil adams has picked a point that is closer to the realism but isn't fully like photorealistic uh but there's a lot more detail in like the musculature like bones are a bit more shown than necessarily right. muscle and I think that goes to kind of with the ballet thing of what you're saying. Like, these are fit people, but they're not like mountain men. Uh, and there's more detail in the background in this first issue that we're looking at. What is the power with some loincloth fool on the front? Uh, we get this beautiful background of. Right. We're looking at the splash page yeah. of his first issue. 
And I feel like this splash page in particular with the angel sort of arcing beautifully above this, I don't know, hovering, hovering aircraft that, that the rest of the X-Men are in and the Egyptian pharaohs off in the background is almost like Neil Adams throwing down the gauntlet the moment he enters Marvel Comics of, look, I'm upping the stakes. I'm going to really wow you with my art in a way you haven't been wowed before, at least at Marvel Comics. Which is a little bit unfair of me because the other artists have wowed people, certainly in many ways. But Sure, but I don't think any big Jack Kirby moments were coming from X-Men or anything. He was on it, but it wasn't one of his standout books. And he was on it a long time ago at this point. Yeah, And Jack Kirby just had a completely different approach. So it's kind of like, I'm going to wow you with this new Neil Adams approach. And I heard Neil Adams talking about this in an interview recently where he said that he had actually worked in funny animal animation before this, along with developing a realistic style while um, he also worked on a, I think he was one of those um, those artists who don't get credit on someone else's comic strip in the newspaper. And that was a really realistic thing, but he also worked in funny animal animation. And he said he brought the funny, he, he took a very realistic style and then brought the funny animal um, posing and over-exaggerating of everything into his comic book art. And, oh, okay. you know, I don't know if that's, totally true or but but that sort of rang true to me it does so that everyone is in these poses where their hands are strained and they're stretching forward or reaching way forward or yeah it's all detailed it's all there it's all posed and it's all and this carries through through this entire chunk of comics everything is hyper melodramatic yes the melodrama is almost unbearably high in these eight issues. I yeah. Yeah. And I, I think I, you know, when I was thir- 12, 13, 14, I really related to that over emotionality of things in, in a way that I don't at my extreme age now. Well, and in this first issue, uh, it was funny, and maybe I'm just making the connection because you picked it out for us, but I got this Conan feel from this Pharaoh character who's, you know, buff topless guy kind of proclaiming things at people it just had that vibe to me he is like a conan villain and it's about a year or two off from from uh robert e how i mean from roy thomas adapting uh conan to marvel oh, comics there you go so um yeah it kind of prefigures that i think this is 1969 uh, this whole run takes place during 1969 and Conan comes in, or I think, in 1970. But yeah, so that's a that's a great connection. And and later, Adams did draw a few uh, Conan stories for Marvel, and and I always wished he had a chance to do more of them. But uh, I wanted to, while we're looking at the different art, let's see. Oh, here is the splash page of the previous issue when it was uh, done by Don Heck and Werner Roth. And everything is kind of, there's the living Pharaoh, and it's perfectly fine illustration, but everything is kind of a stiff mimicry of, of Jack Kirby, I would say. I guess, but this is so much more my kind of comic. I find uh, it easier to read the page. Um, I find the like storytelling of it more present. Yeah, it's, it's kind of like... Uh, I don't know, John Romita storytelling in a way. And then yeah. when you jump to uh, oops, Neil Adams, everything is zooming all over the place and it is harder to follow what's going on. Well, and this is something that I find interesting. When, I t- when I've talked to artist friends in the past, and they talk about like what they think the best comics are, the best art in a comic is. It's always these like hyper-detailed moments and whatnot. And, you know, I'll say, like, of course, this is a beautiful page or whatever, but the storytelling of it isn't always necessarily the best because there's so many lines, there's so many little things to look at. And whereas there's a lot of cool stuff where you can actually stare at the page for a while and find things, that's always great. There's also times where there's just kind of a lot of detail. Like, um, we were looking at a page where Cyclops is 
on the sand and he's struggling and his eye beams are coming out and there's just all these little like shadows and details and stuff and it's just kind of it's a lot of time and detail going into that and it doesn't add a thing it draws your eyes to just his shoulder well you might say that neil adams is kind of the beginning of the show-off artist which culminated in the sort of image artists of 1992-93 the artists who were there to wow you and make you think about the art more than think about the story so he's a precursor to j scott campbell perhaps i haven't does J. Scott Campbell do anything besides covers? I haven't read actual comics drawn by him. He's done a handful of comics, uh-huh. but I believe it was years ago. He, I don't think he's done a comic in a long time. I mean, when I look at this, I think a lot about Jim Lee. And okay. just that kind of, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to wow you. Like you said, with the details and with the kind of crazy energy of the picture more than whether it's telling the story. The storytelling comes perhaps secondary. Although I think I don't I, I don't want to go too far in this direction. I think the storytelling worked for me pretty well by Neil Adams. Although the emotional level is heightened in a way that is almost bizarre. I wouldn't say it's poor, but I would say it's secondary. Uh-huh. So you would have been one of at the time Neil Adams came out, one of the older comic book readers complaining that this newfangled hippie art is uh, not good storytelling or something. I I don't know if it would have been that heavy, but uh, I don't know. I don't think I'd be reading X-Men at this point. Uh See, I would have totally been drawn into this art and and just wanted to read it because of the art. I don't know. I'm kind of curious about this whole era because... to me, this is the era right before X-Men get canceled. Like, this is when people didn't like X-Men. So, I don't... Now, there there are claims that the sales did go up, but it they were so slow in getting their sales reports back then. I think there was at least a six-month gap between when you put out a comic and when you found out how well it had sold. That by the time they had definitively canceled it, and sent all the writers and artists off onto other assignments. And then they found the sales were going up that Martin Goodman said, well, let's just keep it going as a reprint series. And maybe we'll keep some of those readers along. Um, now, whether that's true or not, uh, th- but that's what I've read probably from uh, statements from Neil Adams, I'm guessing, because he loves to give interviews and talk about these things. Sure. So you don't like we're looking at now the second issue Adams did. Uh, where, where the Sentinels live and they're reaching out to grab Polaris, Lorna Dane, and you don't that those pictures don't like get you kind of excited about superheroes and the craziness of of this world. I it's a good it's a good page. I mean, these are okay comics and all that. It's it's weird because um, this is all pre any X Men I've ever cared about. And uh, it's weird because it's also a far cry from the, you know, first thrust of the X-Men to get to more to the... The, the, the original Stanley Jack Kirby X-Men. Yeah, the, I mean, we're still with the 05, but it doesn't feel like the 05, which, right. if you don't know, the 05 is how people refer to the original uh-huh. five The original X-Men. five members of the X-Men who appeared in the very first issue and continued as the main characters till they were canceled. Yeah, um... Here we have a bit of a bigger cast, but only by a bit. Uh, Professor X has been killed. They've added a few people. They've subtract. Uh, Professor mm-hmm. X is dead, although I think he comes back in the very last issue before they cancel it, which is after these ones we're talking about. There were two more issues yeah, afterwards. That's bizarre. It was canceled with issue sixty-five. Yeah. So I believe it was. Yeah, yeah. but we have this Polaris character, and we have Havoc. Um, and we've had a few other mutants kind of built up, but what's weird to me is we have these mutants, and it's just like a handful of them. Of them, they're kind of in their own little corner. And to me, this feels like well, the X Men aren't the Avengers because they're mutants, but there's only a handful of them, and they just deal with each other. And it's uh, it's it's weird. 
Well, there's a bunch of mutant villains that show up that get captured by the Sentinels also. Mm-hmm. So in the in the ones that we're looking at, the um, the first three are a oh, first four are a Sentinel story, mm-hmm. and uh, that ends with a twist. There's the son of the original creators of the Sentinels, who has rebuilt the Sentinels and sent them after the X-Men and he's involved a judge. I don't think in real life judges get to lead uh, committees for wiping out mutants. That would more likely be a senator. But um, anyway, the the son has kind of fooled this judge into being on his side, but the judge turns against him eventually. And and the uh, it turns out the son of the inventor of the Sentinels is, shocking irony, a mutant himself. Yeah, but barely. Right. He can, what's his power? Can he see the future or something? I forget. I, I don't even know if it came up. I think honestly. they explained it briefly. Yeah. But anyway, and then at the end, I forget who was talking to them. Was it Beast or someone else? Talks to the Sentinels and convinces them to, they need to destroy the cause of mutants in the first place. So mutations come from radiation from the sun, so they fly off into the sun, and that's that's their demise. <laughs> Which comes into play even now, right, with the um, hox pox. I mean, I don't know if they're going to be tricking them like that. This was very much a comic book. No, I meant the sentinels being out near the sun. Oh, yeah, that's true. Yeah. Oh, that's the only connection I was making there. <laughs> okay, I'm with you. Uh, yeah. I don't know. It's a bizarre little story. Some fun little moments along the way, but it's a. Uh, what's kind of hard about comics in this era too is it's not that there's a lot of words; it's that there's a lot of words, and you don't really need to read them. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't feel that way. I liked. I noticed that there was very little in captions. It was all in dialogue. And I, That's true. I enjoyed the writing. It, it was very uh, overheated writing, and it was full of what they must have thought in 1969 was kind of youthfully poetic ways of speaking or something. How do you feel about the costumes in this run? It's weird. I also feel like they were trying to jazz things up by giving everyone their own costume, but a lot of the costume designs are really bad. Yeah, they should have stuck with the original Jack Kirby costume designs. <laughs> Although I assume Neil Adams designed Polaris's. I'm not Polaris. Uh, Havoc's costume, and that's a really cool one. Oh, okay. I, I uh, thought the costumes were all kind of goofy looking. And Beast looks really weird. Like he's not bestial enough. He's more like an acrobat. Yeah, acrobat and a full long john. He almost looks like the Brothers Grimm costume, minus the skull. And I'm thinking, in a way, the costumes look more silly because of Neil Adams' seemingly realistic anatomy and everything. Yeah, that's fair. Although I'm saying realistic anatomy as I'm looking at this picture of the beast falling out of the window, and I don't think anyone would ever actually be in that position. But <laughs> Well, and he's supposed to... Well, Beast is supposed to be in weird positions, right? Like, that's part of his deal. He's That's true. That's true. And then the next plot, or, or did you do you have specific thoughts that were raised in your head by the Sentinels plot? Um, Does it... I mean, uh, I always found the Sentinels a very exciting villain in my youth. And now they've been played over and over again. But this is probably the first... When I read one or two of these issues as a kid probably my first sentinels that's yeah they're kind of a different thing at this point um i've read sentinels so many different ways that this just feels like sentinel classic i guess so makes sense these are the first sentinels that move up beyond their own programming which at first is said by their their recreator the son who turns out to be a mutant who they then uh, turn against as a great thing that they can think for themselves and make their own, invent their own machines without the humans inventing them for them and stuff. Yeah. Step closer to the singularity. There we go. 
and then um, there was a, I think a two issue thing where they introduced Sauron, who yeah. is a very odd character. <laughs> who who I guess he's kind of like a vampire and kind of a pterodactyl. Yeah, they're trying to make him like a mutant vampire, right? Like they're taking the motif but making it different for this universe. And Instead it's a fun a... idea. Sorry? I, I think it's a fun idea, but again, I've seen Soren played so many different ways that coming back to this just felt kind of... I don't know. Uh, I, I've seen it done better. <laughs> <laughs> well, this was the first time it was done. Uh-huh. But it, it's very... I thought this was the weakest of the three storylines here. Sauron okay. is, um, he's just all over the place and his power to absorb human energy just seems to come out of nowhere because, because he was attacked by pterodactyls early on in the story, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but he's, it's visually very cool. And I, I don't know if you're familiar with um, Man Bat in Batman. Uh, yes. There's a Man Bat character in Spider-Man at one point. And, and Man Bat started in Batman, written by Neil, uh, or drawn by Neil Adams, probably oh. a year or two before this. And it feels almost like they were trying to redo the Man Bat story, but make him more vampiric, and but not a bat. <laughs> interesting i mean i like the psycho eyes thing right he's able to mesmerize yeah that's cool um he's a character it's an interesting x-men villain because it plays this mutant idea in a different way that's more straight which gets you away from the brotherhood or the magneto back and forth but is more just this bestial entity that they need to grapple with well and he's supposed to be I don't know, the tragic evil person. <laughs> right. But I think, again, it was probably originated in an excuse for um, Neil Adams to draw crazy things. Mm-hmm. Definitely. But it, it, it kind of leads them to the precipice of the Savage Land. Mm-hmm. Even though... Uh, Sauron seemingly falls to his death and when they follow him down there into the Savage Land, they never re-encounter Sauron in this storyline, which which really bugged me. It seemed like a That's natural fair. thing to do. So the last story is a team-up with Kazar uh, fighting against, what, what do they call him, the Mastermind or something like that, who is... Either at first claiming to help mutants in the Savage Land, but actually is creating mutants as part of his plan to uh, come back to the rest of the world and take over, and it is Magneto. Yeah, this is just super villainous Magneto. Well, I thought it was cool because I feel like there's a presaging a Magneto who is more can be viewed as more reasonable because he briefly seems like he's more reasonable here and then turns out to be totally evil. But um, I feel like this version of Magneto might've inspired people later to say Magneto could be a sympathetic villain. I could see that. And I feel like they've returned to this idea of these uh, mutants that Magneto created in the Savage Land, but now I can't remember the specifics storylines, but. I mean, at some point, they sure did. Um, it's it's tied to the whole Sauron, Kazar, Savage Land deal, you know. So they brought um, back Sauron, too, and connected him to this storyline, which he should have been connected to, but wasn't here. My understanding uh, was that uh, uh, Sauron was a Kazar villain because typically that's how it goes. Like whenever someone goes to Wakanda, they team up with Black Panther and beat up Claw. <laughs> it's kind of like you'd go to the Savage Land, team up with Kazar, and beat up Sauron. That was kind of just the the go to, right? And I think shortly hereafter, maybe in 1970 or so, there was a Kazar story that was about Sauron. Um, 
drawn by Barry Smith. Speaking of Conan. Hmm. I guess one thing that I, I mean, I, I'm getting a pretty clear feeling that you do not like these stories and you do not like this art. Uh, one thing I like about it is it goes from one sort of wild, bizarre scenario to another. Um, and the bizarreness and the wildness seems much greater when drawn by Neil Adams than when drawn by Don Heck and Werner Roth. And it allows or maybe allowed Roy Thomas to sort of unleash a level of kind of crazy wackiness that you wouldn't have seen when he was working with different artists. I could see that. Yeah. Um, I mean, I don't know. These uh, didn't particularly grab me. This just feels like a different. This just feels like when X-Men was a fuddy duddy uh, <laughs> superhero thing. See, I see this... it as wild and exciting and you see it as fuddy duddy <laughs> i see it as as the breaking point against the fuddy duddiness that it had become after uh stan lee and jack kirby left it um where it was kind of a soap opera about some teenagers who would fight villains here and there well and that's all i'm seeing <laughs> really there's there's much less soap opera here and much more just sort of over the top Right, it is less reliant on the... T they're not in school, they're not doing the teenage things. That's good. Um, and there's not a whole lot of so-and-so has a girlfriend, so-and-so has a boyfriend. There's just little passing remarks about Iceman and Polaris. but And then uh, Havoc and Polaris, which gets started here. Oh yeah, that's true. Yeah, I, I mean, I see what you're saying. Just in my mind, like... If it's pre Claremont, it's kind of like before people cared about X Men, anyways. So, how much of the um, pre cancellation X Men have you read? A few of the original issues here or there, um, especially if it's like a Spider Man team up issue, but that's about it. I haven't read most of it, um, mostly because a lot of what I read here I wasn't a big fan of. So, I never really delved into it. So this was probably the most of it that I've read as a chunk was doing this. See, I feel like the, all of this stuff has the seeds of all the stuff Claremont did. I mean, mm -hmm. the entire run. I mean, a lot of stuff Kirby and Lee set up. And the, the sort of wild sci-fi stretches that Claremont would go off in all kinds of directions, I feel like he extrapolated from this kind of stuff see i don't see anything like the brood in here right or the shiar or the whole phoenix idea um i just the, the the like blend of the characters to the plot in and out and using that to kind of build on each other it's I don't know. It, it's there. It, these, I mean, these are interesting comics. I don't want to like come down on these. Like when we were talking Batman back when, right? Um, these don't inspire that kind of like uh, need for negativity. These are just. Uh, oh, you mean uh, you're talking about Tom King Batman? Yeah, like, like the like. There's some fun stuff in here, and you're right. Like, there's some cool stuff with the Neil Adams art. And I mean, there, there's a, there's a lot of kind of cool, good stuff. It just didn't, I don't, it just didn't spark much for me. I mean, I didn't mind going through it. It was fun. It was interesting kind of like go through a bit of comic book history, mm -hmm. um, and enjoy that. Uh, but it just didn't, I don't know. It just didn't, uh, spark for me. See, I think Claremont made much more sophisticated the soap opera that was already in the earlier, the very early X-Men, and then took the wild sort of sci-fi ride that this is beginning to hint at under Neil Adams and just refined it and, you know, improved it in a, a million different ways. But, um, well, I think a big problem here is that the characters are almost completely defined by their powers. So like, really what's the difference between say like cyclops and angel here you know or bobby as iceman they all seem very kind of like the stoic you know 
flat-jawed uh, hero type um, charging in. And then you have Havoc, who's kind of the more tortured soul, but yay, verily. When you get later, you, I mean, there's a reason Claremont basically makes Wolverine the protagonist of X-Men, is that it's this like tortured character with this bizarre past. Like There's just all this weird storytelling you can do with him, and they take him everywhere and do all these crazy things within a handful of years. And then you play that off, the straight man of Scott... And then you have younger characters and older characters, and you just have all these kind of personality facets. And very quickly, X-Men becomes the most robust and diverse cast uh, throughout comics. So whenever people ask, you know, who's your favorite gay character, your favorite black character, your favorite female character, there's always an X-Men from that run in there. Um, Well, no doubt Claremont definitely did all of that, and he took you know, what was before very simple characters who kind of repeated the same things over and over again and gave them life and made them change and have their relationships move on. Um, I just see these, these issues towards the end of this X-Men run as something of a foreshadowing of not that particular aspect, but of, of an attempt to make the X-Men move on. There is a sense of, um, rapidly introducing a lot of new characters here um, from uh, the the characters that appear in the Sentinel to Sauron and his girlfriend. And I don't know, it's, it's not nothing compared to the giant cast that eventually evolves, but Claremont didn't start with a giant cast. He had to develop that. Well, Claremont did a weird thing where he was kind of handed the cast after giant size Right. And then he kind of whittled it down to what he wanted of those, and then he built it back up. And I think, I mean, I, I w- not, couldn't swear, but I would think if you looked at the first five or six issues by Claremont, the cast is not that big. It takes quite no. a while before you get this vast cast. Well, and yeah, a lot of it's built during the, uh, what we now call the Dark Phoenix Saga. I guess it was called that then. I don't know why I said now. Um, where you get um, Kitty Pride, and you get uh you know the hellfire club being an entity and dealing with all this and kind of putting gene back in a way um that's a big breaking point but here with these comics i think you're right i mean i think you can kind of see the builds towards something else what's there's two other things i really noticed was that um angel's a lot more prominent in these comics He's very prominent yeah I think that I have to imagine part of that is because it seems like Neil Adams enjoys drawing him. I think like that's a big part of it. Yeah. There's something to the wings that's just, he draws a good angel. And a lot more so in this last issue when the uh, costume is Angel's costume with a little like halo on it, the blue and white, versus the weird suspended monstrosity thing through most of I this I think run. there's three different costumes of Angel in here. Um, okay but two of them have suspenders <laughs> yeah to Hawkman, it's not uh, uh, most notable to me was that quote marvel girl jean gray had no personality and her powers constantly ran out and they didn't use her powers very creatively in a lot of situations where you it would have been nice to use her powers I'm not sure if she's tel- even telepathic at this point, I suppose. I've been going through a chunk of X-Men things recently, and I've kind of just come to the conclusion that I don't like Jean Grey. I don't think she's ever a good character, except for maybe an X-Men Red. Well, uh, the thing that makes her interesting, I guess, is there's a naughty person inside of her. You know, in that build-up to the Dark Phoenix, when she's uh, having all these delusions of being kind of a kinky woman in the past (laughs) yeah and by today's standards kinky woman means like she even wants sex like it just well but she maybe wants some rather uh sex with the wrong people and wearing kinky clothes and stuff i yeah i mm. 
But she that literally had well. no personality here. She was just someone. Well, earlier on, she was someone that I think three or four members of the group were secretly in love with. Oh, they all Professor wanted to date her. Yeah, they everybody wanted Jean because she was the female, as Stanley would write in his comics. Um, so from that point of view, things were. Uh, Roy Thomas was growing things up a little bit, bringing things from junior high school to to high school or something where there there was other girls like Polaris and different boys went off with different girls and people formed couples and then other people fell in love and I don't know. Well, compared to Stan Lee's stuff and where this was, like, this is past school. Like, they've all graduated. They're all out being superheroes. Like, they're all part of, like, this Marvel pantheon. They're just in their weird little corner. They're still being billed as teens on the cover. I don't know how old. I think they're supposed... The whole idea by 1969 was that Marvel at least hoped that their main audience was now college age, which probably was not true, but... um, the worst college age readers of Marvel comics. But I think the main audience was still the, uh, you know, 12 to 15 year olds. I, yeah. And I, I mean, I don't know. They just feel older generally than being in that stuck in that weird little school with Xavier, you know, and I think part of the idea of killing Xavier was to just move on let them be on their own let them make their mistakes without the parents scolding them basically yeah man i i I think it's interesting another thing that kind of like detracted for me though was all these issues just bleed into each other there's never kind of an a a resolution right there's no total resolution no total resting point and it made these kind of exhausting to read. It's like, okay, now we're here. Okay, now we're here. Okay, now we're here. It's like, okay, we went from Sentinels uh, to the Sentinels Master, like, flipping out, to all of a sudden we're dealing with Soren, to all of a sudden we're dealing with Magneto. And I was like, wait, what happened to Soren? It just it bled together in a weird way, and it just made it harder to parse. Well, after reading a few issues, I forced myself to just read one issue a day. And it really helped a lot. And I think all of the, a lot of the momentum of cliffhangeriness is just to get you to remember to buy it next month because you would have to go search for it. There was no pull lists or what have you. But, and this was still in an era of comics where you purely wanted the illusion of change without any real change. But this seems like it, to me, it feels like it's grasping towards hoping for some things to be a little different. Like we almost got a hint that Magneto may not be what we always think he is, but then he went back to being just the purely evil mutant guy who wants to rule the world, really. He may talk about mutant rights, but all he really wants to do is rule the world. Well, so that's a big difference between, (laughs) I mean, I love the Chris Claremont uh, X-Men run. But I still get a lot out of the the early X Men. They kind of, I really like the Jack Kirby Stan Lee days, and then it's kind of rougher for me when it's um, Stan Drake as the writer and uh, Werner Roth as the artist. It's it's hard. It's rough going there, although it still has some good bits. And then it when Roy Thomas came back to it, and then he got Neil Adams. To me, there's a lot of excitement and energy to it, and there's a lot of sense. I feel like this says, no, this was not not a loser comic, but actually an exciting, interesting comic to play with, and and that the um, it it did highlight the outsideriness emotional difficulty of being the mutants and made the uh, the metaphor of it more interesting although as you say it's a world where there's actually maybe 12 mutants total um that we know of and that was really highlighted when we kind of kind of go through the rolodex with the sentinels where they're like oh we put away this mutant. oh we put away this mutant. they're talking about blob and unis and whatever and it's like they it just doesn't feel big enough for what the X-Men is supposed to represent. True. 
that I suppose is is a limitation of the way comic books were were done in the Silver Age, where everything was the world's was much smaller. In the in the Bronze Age, the world sort of started becoming bigger. <laughs> I I don't I don't think that's fair. I, um, I mean, if you look at like the Fantastic Four, like they helped build half the Marvel universe, and they did a lot of it, like issue after issue after issue, and it felt so expansive and amazing or if you look at the avengers around this time i mean how far off are we from like the kree skull war or something oh the kree skull war was done right after this by the same uh writer artist team right so uh, the fact that this feels so limited uh, i think is a hindrance that i think you can level against it based on the contemporary comics of the time it just you i i put it as a hit against it Uh. Well, I feel like like when I would read some of those uh, X-Men that came before, uh, it's almost like it all took place in one house, <laughs> the uh, X-Men mansion. And, and this feels like it's gone off to Egypt and to the... I know they've gone to the, the uh, Khazar's Savage Land before, but it just... It feels pretty expansive to me. It's it's trying to reach out. I well, they're globe trotting, but like the idea that there's only like twelve mutants is more what I'm getting at, right? Yeah. Like, well, I guess I just give that to them. That, that um, I think one thing that Claremont brought is he actually viewed his story as a he he started at some point must have started thinking of it in the long term and an ever expanding story rather than a story that's going to restart every issue or two um, in terms of the readership and the significance of things in the, the scope of the story. Well, I also think making a mark with each issue, which he tended to do uh, was big, which allowed things to grow more quickly than here where everything's kind of just bleeding together, but it just never resolves or, settles on something and so we can't really ever grow because we're just tumbling from one movement to the next yeah i mean i think the tumbling has some good parts to it too but it it definitely i mean i've definitely read comics where that's a cool thing right like you uh run through and it just never stops hey 52 who's that what what hey 52 you were looking at one with Eric the Red. I was I was trying to go back to um, issues not drawn by by Neil Adams. I it just it looks so much more like a comic book there. It's so uh, much. It, I, this looks a lot like it was drawn by Michael Allred, actually. <laughs> I mean, Michael Allred was kind of harkening back to that day, and that's a big deal. And I know early X Men was a big influence for him when he was doing Madman. And this is still kind of part of, I think this is, it's still part of a, the X-Men are more grown up and taking care of themselves. But just the way it's drawn, the world just doesn't seem as expansive and meaningful to me as it does when Neil Adams was drawing it. That's fair. Or it's a different feel. It's a different vibe. Further. Um, but I mean, how does... Um... Neil Adams X-Men compared to you for Jim Lee's X-Men. I didn't read very much of Jim Lee's X-Men. That's right when I dropped off of the X-Men. I didn't like his art. <laughs> well, and now we know that that was really not it really wasn't Chris Claremont writing the plots anymore. It was it was all Jim Lee. Eventually forced Chris Claremont out. He said it's either me or him. So at first they, oh. or maybe Chris Claremont said that actually. Uh, that would explain why Chris Claremont was only on like three issues when they rebooted X-Men and then left, which is right. weird. Eventually Jim Lee said, I want to have complete control of the plot and let's not even talk with Chris Claremont till he does this. He can write the dialogue afterwards. And Chris Claremont got so mad about that. He eventually said, it's either Jim Lee or me. And they said, okay, it's Jim Lee. Bye. And then who did they bring back eventually? When did they bring him back? Chris Claremont? Yeah. They brought him back for actually X-Men multiple forever times. or on the real X-Men? Oh, oh, on the real X-Men uh, okay. around the 500s. Um, huh. 
See, I didn't know that. I pretty much didn't read any X-Men until later in the, when I came back to comics because of the new 52, but. Okay. I don't know. Anyway. So I thought you'd find more to be interested about this and I was wrong. (laughs) So great podcast. (laughs) I mean, and I don't want to poo-poo it. I mean, I, I just, uh. It just felt like a lot, and uh, it's interesting. Like I said, it's interesting comic book history, but it's just kind of, to me, it's not, it doesn't get to the Mayu of what makes X Men interesting. Nor does it have most of the interesting characters. Like this isn't a Magneto that's um, very compelling because, like you said, we just get to the evil Magneto. We have this Havoc who's just kind of tortured about his powers, but that's about as far as it goes. Uh, Cyclops is just kind of pushing his team from one thing to the next. Marvel Girl's kind of a dud. Iceman is there. Uh, and then Angel did actually have some interesting moments in here, which was interesting, though unexpected. And you get to see some early Polaris, so there's that. And the costumes are bonkers. But it's funny to me because uh, this is more your speed, and then um, Hoxpox is more my speed. But you just couldn't jive with that; like it's just different. Well, and I certainly I don't really compare this to Hoxpox. Um, it this Hoxpox is like a million miles away from this, and so many more layers and stuff. Although I think you could argue Hoxpox has very you know, and I haven't read what came after Hoxpox, but it had very little actual characterization in it except for a bit of Moira. It had zero, the only characterization of Professor X is that he's floating around looking odd and, and is just happy to do whatever, whatever it takes to, uh, to get rid of, you know, to, to separate from humanity. Well, he, he's at this point of survival, but I mean, with any amount of historical context of that, you're realizing that he's compromising his dream in the name of survival and growth. And so he's kind of, it's kind of interesting. We don't, we don't even see him regretting it. Well, he has, he doesn't have time or a moment to regret it yet because he's building. But he seems to be almost an automaton, which is kind of a, I mean, everybody in Jonathan Hickman is a bit of a, a place marker for, in part of the larger intellectual puzzle. It's not a character based thing usually well but we have this representative representative with xavier of an idea with apocalypse as an idea and magneto as an idea they're the heads of these things running and it's just pressing forward then you have the characters kind of come into this philosophical construct and, and where they align there and that's kind of the big deal and i guess you also have mr sinister be a big part of that as well as kind of more the uh devious side well i mean make no mistake i think chris claremont's x-men is the best stuff and you know one of the very best comic books of the um the bronze age and a little beyond the bronze age but i just think this is a really cool comic for its time and place not not maybe with a little bit of signs of of x-men to come but not really to be viewed, read, or judged, you know, in the context of Chris Claremont's X Men. Oh, that's fair. I just I can't not because it's X Men, and so. <laughs> <laughs> and the X Men you like just wouldn't exist if the previous X Men hadn't come along. Like Chris Claremont did not make things up whole cloth. He built them out of uh, other people's work, both from. Uh, from back in this day, but also on what Len Wein and um, and uh, Dave Cockrum came up with. Mm. Yeah. I mean, a huge number of the large cast in uh, in the earlier part of uh, Claremont's run come from Cockrum. I mean, definitely, right? Like, comics move in one direction, people are inspired by what has happened, or take or reject, and they build on that, and then make it work. Um but on the other hand, I mean, you know, I, I think we saw Claremont do so many other things, taking the 
the roughest ideas and then developing that out into like Excalibur or New Mutants or other things and just the tapestry grew so fast he was writing so many books around well the tapestry didn't grow that fast i mean like new mutants and excalibur there were many years of just playing chris claremont x-men before those things happened it's not like he wrote you know anyway but but it was great that he was so successful and he was able to continually enlarge that world although i would argue at this point and I guess that's part of my dislike of Hoxbach. That world is too large. I mean, it it certainly does not fit into the rest of the Marvel universe in any way that I can accept. And with Hickman, you know, and with uh, this huge future history that involves the entire fate of the entire universe and all intelligent life throughout the history of the universe, you know, it's just, yeah, it's hard to it's hard to relate to after a certain. So this this stuff is a one extreme, and Hickman's I mean the that's other. every Marvel comic at some point. I mean we've seen some devastating bit like that in Avengers, in Fantastic Four, in Spider Man. Even you know they all have their cataclysmic moment that defines everything. Well, I or cataclysmic moment that ruins everything. Usually, yeah, right, dystopian. I mean, not just dystopia, but that just makes the story so big that the small events of the lives of the characters in it stop being so meaningful. Right. Yeah, definitely. Well, um, so we, I, you know, I'm so brokenhearted, I'll probably die, but then I'll come back to life because <laughs> I won't stay dead. Uh, do you have any idea yet uh, what we should talk about next time? Because this one was my turn. I have an idea, but I'm curious if you have access to it. Okay, what is that? Uh, it would be um, potentially Emerald Dawn's 1 and 2. Uh, I just got Emerald Dawn 1, the original trade from the 80s or 90s. Well, whenever oh. it came out, they very I got that too. To a trade. If you watched my videos, you'd know. Sorry, I can't watch them all. I have a job and a kid, and I just can't keep up with your... <laughs> voluminous output you're saying your job and your kid are more important than my half hour video showing off a box of comics i i, I don't am. understand this <laughs> <sighs> surely you can do your job while paying more attention to me i think i, I understand you know paying more attention to dean because you know, yeah right otherwise it just becomes a big mess all around the house but <laughs> Okay, so next time we will uh, do some Green Lantern, which right. is your current obsession. It is. So much better than me. I've been liking it. Okay, well, that is probably the end of our